he's a fucking monster. Let's just put that out there. Suge Knight is a fucking monster. He's well, he's the fucking Rasputin of hip hop. I think the tentacle porn was a little excessive. <laughs> Can you say that again? The tentacle porn was a little excessive. It follows. I thought was just a terrible pile of garbage, and I just um, I just don't think so. Furiosa is Bay for me. She's yeah. she's Bay of 2015. <laughs> oh uh, boy! If there was a category for that, she would have won it. There isn't. Thank God. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this continuation of episode 48, we look back at 2015 more in depth as we look at some best of categories. Did you bring the cavalry? Woman, I am the cavalry. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back into episode 48. Uh, if you listened to uh, the first half, we talked about our top six films of 2015. And uh, now we're going to go a little more in-depth, as uh, myself, Alex Diekman, Nick Cheney, and Toussaint Egan talk about uh, some, some categories we decided on, uh, sort of like not giving an award necessarily, but giving our, our feelings of who was the best or what was the best or what performed the best or whatever of the, of the categories or some of them were the worst. So um, let's just jump right in and start with best male performance and who would like to go first? I think I'll go first. Okay. All right. So... My nomination for best male performance was Oscar Isaac as Nathan Thrum, uh Ex Machina, with a with a runner up with uh, Benicio del Toro as Alejandro Gillick in Sicario. Oh. I was not that hot in Sicario, but I thought that Benicio del Toro was the bright spot of that entire yes, film. Yes, I agree with that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we're all in a, yeah. Yeah, Oscar Isaac, I think, delivered a an awesome performance as this very menacing and very imposing like genius character um, who just happens to know who, who just happens to know how to give life to a, to an artificial being. And he doesn't really like, he, he has to tackle what that actually means in being a creator. And it ultimately proves against his downfall. And I thought it was awesome. Yeah, and he never once feels like a mad scientist. He's more like a frat boy. I mean, when he, when he's introduced, he's, punching a punching bag and you know drinking uh in the morning like just i just love that approach to the character that he completely sells every minute of and sexing up his sex robot yeah yes sir hey you know what you gotta do what you gotta do right do, you do. do you gotta do that <laughs> <laughs> do you gotta build a sex robot <laughs> like yeah he if you're does. nathan apparently you do That's so right. yeah very cool well my uh, best male performance of the year shouldn't be that big of a surprise it was michael fassbender and steve jobs even though I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio deserves the acclaim he's getting for The Revenant, I uh, I loved Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs, and I it's one of those rare things where I can't imagine anyone else playing that role, and um, I just thought he knocked that shit out of the park, and well-deserving of an Oscar nomination, and uh, even though I, I'm pulling for Leo to win, because I think he's, he's 
gone on long enough with with roles that deserve it and he should finally win i it'll be disappointed if he does because i i'd like to see michael fassbender win because man he's just so good in this film and i'm always going to look back at this i feel like and think this is my role that i'll always think of michael fassbender in he was great as steve jobs in the movie steve jobs for sure Mm mm-hmm so my, uh, I almost want to call it favorite male performance instead of best male performance okay. because this is maybe my one wild card of the uh, of our categories. Yeah. But my favorite perf- male performance of this year is actually Jason Bateman in The Gift. Okay. Because I think that was maybe the best casting choice I've seen all year because Jason Bateman has been playing a variation of the character that he plays in The Gift. But Joel Egerton finally found the vehicle for him to actually unleash the sinister undertone that's always been apparent because he's always played these very smarmy assholes uh who are usually more charming uh than uh you know menacing uh but here i love that the facade completely drops and he actually i i think the empathy switch from uh from his character to joel Henderson's character that happens in the third act is not only done so well on a script level but i think it's because that jason bateman like as the audience when we're watching his performance we we never want to think that he's become a different person or like that the gloves are off now but like he's always been this person but we're now we're just sick of it because he's taken things too far and i just thought that that was just just I, i guess i was just so happy that finally someone did uh cast him as like the true villain that he was always meant to be so to speak and in a very realistic way i think the crazy thing about that too is that he's playing a role that's very similar to his other roles we're just getting more deeper into like yes he's kind of funny but at what cost yes so. and and also it never once veered into anything that i would say was over the top like when he does yell or when he does whatever it looks like a person who does have rage issues mm-hmm. and, and not just a person who thinks that it's dramatic to shout so i just i was really taken aback by uh this this just his role and i really really enjoyed jason bateman in the gift nice. jason bateman was getting pissed off kind of like michael bluth <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, i guess i should mention too that we have 12 categories we do uh, and that was only the first one so So strap in yeah we've got i mean we're not going too in depth there like like we did with our actual movies but but yeah yeah, it's it's fun to go through go go take a pee and come back (laughs) so moving on to uh number two uh the second category on our list was uh, to go with best male performance best female performance hey look at what we did there (laughs) so go ahead tucson okay so my best female performance was uh alicia vikander as uh ava in ex machina followed by um, a uh, honorable mention to Charlize Theron for her role as Imperator Furiosa in Mad Max Fury Road. Um, <clears throat> as much as I very much enjoy Furiosa as a character, and like <laughs> Furiosa's Bay for me, she's yeah. she's Bay of 2015. <laughs> if there was a combination, of, if there was a uh, oh boy, if there was a uh, a category for that, she would have won it. Okay, but <laughs> there isn't. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. Maybe uh, next year. We'll have to remember that. Yeah. yeah. Who, Most, who's Bay in 2016? Who, who is Tucson's Bay this year? Uh, <laughs> Vikander, uh, with her turn as Ava, was so menacing and so seductive and so beautiful that I just I, – I can't it, – it eclipses everything else. Like I, I don't know I, – I can't see anything else but Ava being like one of the most – interesting characters not even an antagonist not even as a protagonist but just as an existing figure in this universe is just so 
fascinating to me. And I think that she brought a lot to that role. And I'm so happy to see how even if she's not getting recognition for that, which I think is a crime in and of itself, I think that it's 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 well past time her due to be recognized as an as an actress. And I think that she's p- phenomenal in this role. I think her performance is basically the reason like the the evidence that of how good it is and mm-hmm. the fact that when you watch that movie you are taking the test alongside uh Caleb. Like yeah. it is so well done that you yourself are looking for the seams in her own performance as mm-hmm. an actress, uh that which bleeds into of course the character. I wanna wanna mention uh something in tandem with uh, Ava as a character and also how it roped into the marketing for Ex Machina. It's like, I don't know if you guys actually heard about this, but like before Ex Machina came out, like there was this, this viral thing that was going around on Tinder of all things that people were like, like actually like matched up with Ava and they were going through a <laughs> Turing test through that character. Nice. And, I, and it was actually in promotion, like in redirecting them to the film and actually asking them those same kinds of questions. I thought that was fucking incredible. That's amazing. Cause we now finally have a valid use for Tinder. Yeah. That's, that's good. <laughs> I thought that, that was awesome when I read about that. So <laughs> did not know that. Yeah. So that's my, my best female performance. All right. Well, moving on uh, to to mine, uh, definitely a, an honorable mention that I have was Daisy Ridley as Rey in uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Just because I feel like this was a total I had never heard of her, and I think most people probably hadn't. She's a waitress. She's a, a low level waitress who just happened to find the call to adventure. But I, I, I think the the interesting thing for me is uh, I feel like her character almost parallels another character that I loved in another <laughs> film and became much more popular than I think anybody could have imagined. And this is played by another actress who not only kind of looks like Daisy Ridley, but is also British and all kind of works together. And that was uh, Haley Altwell, who played Agent Carter in Captain America and who was almost like a... Like the the character that people love the most after that first film, and she got her own show, and people seem to love the show, and people seem to love her, and she's bounced that off into doing other things now that she's starting to branch away from just doing Agent Carter, and I feel like Daisy Ridley brings a lot of what she the same kind of things. It, it's that even though she she really looks very similar to her, which is really weird to me. Like it's hard to almost like separate. That. I have to like think about them as different people and sometimes it it's weird looking at her and not thinking of Haley Atwell but she brings that same kind of visual um, acting to it that that just for some reason I love like some of the things she does with her her eyes like when she sees the monster for the first time and her eyes explode and she throws her hand over her mouth and um, Finn just grabs her hand, like finally just, just does it out of and pulls her and you see her like flying around like that kind of physical acting that is kind of over the top. But at the same time, I felt like was sort of restrained and I, I really enjoyed it. It's very much like a star Wars performance, which doesn't mean that it's a bad performance, but it, it it's, it's the same exact kind of things that, you know, uh, the, the, the old generation used yeah. to do. And, and she does it in my opinion with even more aplomb and kind of charisma than and, some of the old characters. And that's what I just genuinely loved about her performance. Cause even though she has a lot of parallels to Luke Skywalker from the first Star Wars uh, New Hope uh, film. She just does it in, in such a way that I feel like she's putting on a great performance. But that was just my honorable mention. Uh, my favorite female performance of the year was Rebecca Ferguson in Mission Impossible Rogue mm-hmm. Nation. Um, I 
just loved everything she brought to the table. She's in this fantastic. Film. She is. And, and I feel like the same kind of thing with Daisy Ridley is for the most part, at least for me, she was an unknown and, and not as much as Daisy Ridley was in, in the grand scheme of things. But here's this new person who's shown up. And I, I feel like for me, and it's kind of weird to say, but she's almost like, almost like the female James Bond in this, in this film. Like she's got this sex appeal thing going about her and she's just kind of going and, and doing whatever really helps out her and her situation. And, and she's playing a, a, a total opposite of what's happening with Ethan Hunt. And I feel like for the first time we have a character who's a female who's almost an equal to what he's doing at the same time. I would say almost. I would say uh, she is. If, yeah. if not, even in some point, she has more cards than Tom Cruise's character does. And one thing I loved about it is uh, I love that the and I like these moments in Star Wars The Force Awakens because I did think it was funny and a good message to send. But I like the, the same exact moments, which actually happened in Mission Impossible first this year, mm-hmm. uh, where Tom Cruise went to help her off the roof at one point, And she just looks at him and she just puts her shoes in his hands instead because yeah. it's like she doesn't need his help, but she'll use him. And I love that little without having a character say, why do you keep grabbing my arm? Even if I don't think it's bad that Star Wars. So the, I just love that kind of even more subtle, like this is just a thing that's happening and as, as always as it should be. But I think that's 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 kind of what I'm going with with this film. And, and not that there's anything to say uh, against the, the feminist ar- argument in, in any way, shape, or form. But I feel like that's the great thing for me is that she's still definitely a female. She has sex appeal she's a, a beautiful woman she wears clothes that reveals things about her but at the same time she's still a strong real woman throughout the, the film does things on her own she doesn't necessarily always rely on tom cruise in fact quite the opposite yeah, i was gonna say at one point she turns the tables and, right yeah and uh the other thing that i loved about her and the way she played the character is the first time i watched this film um I genuinely didn't really know what side she was going to end up on yep. until t- towards the end of the film. Because even when she kind of brings you into thinking, oh, she's a, a good character, then she turns the tables on you as yep. the viewer. And really, we have no reason to believe one way or the other throughout the film until the very end. So um, I just was enthralled with her performance. I thought she brought a lot to the table, and I'm looking forward to her being in more projects. Really quick before we move on, it's funny that you compare her to James Bond almost because she's almost like a slap in the face to Bond girls who are either <laughs> fiercely loyal to James for no real reason or they're just the henchmen's like, you know, uh, lover, so to speak, who just can't get out of the situation that they're in. And I just love that, like, if she walked into a Bond film, she would just kill every man in the room and just walk out and not, right. and not take that shit. <laughs> but I, I think it's yeah. it's more my comparison gets away from the misogyny that's happening with James Bond and more oh, his, yeah. his kind of suave sort of aura he has about himself, which I definitely got that feel from. The roles we don't her. give to women. Yeah. yeah, and she is playing that role, and I'm like very excited at the possibility of her coming back for the next Mission Impossible film, because I'd love to see more of her character. For sure. And I thought she was, Rebecca Ferguson was great playing that role, and I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan now. So that was my best female performance. Well, mine was a tie, but I won't really talk about one of them because I already did on our top six episode. But my favorite performance of the year female was definitely Greta Gerwig and Mistress America. Mm-hmm. Just completely embodies that character. And like every single line she had that was funny and intentionally comedic uh, completely landed. And 
blew me away. So I'll really quickly talk about one that tied with it that I have as an honorable mention, which is Charlotte Rampling in 45 Years. Um, that's a film, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it or anything like that, but just give context. It's a film about a marriage that is kind of being slowly undone by a secret that's not even a secret, by something that's from their past coming back to haunt them, so to speak, in their future. And Charlotte Rampling's uh, character is obviously the, the the wife in the situation and it's called 45 years because it's like they're just about to celebrate their 45th anniversary at a big party and whatnot her performance in the final scene of the movie has no words and is one of the most heartbreaking things i've ever seen in any film ever and everybody needs to watch the movie because it's a great movie it didn't quite make my top 10 but it was in the top 20 I, i loved it uh but she completely brings down the house with no words and just her facial reactions. And I just never felt more gutted uh, in 2015 than watching her reacting to something happening uh, uh, all around her in the final hmm. scene of that movie. And that's uh, just like that. I mean, she's great in the whole movie, but when you get to that ending, uh, she should win an Oscar for that alone. Oh. So, okay. So yeah, that's probably between comedy or drama. It's uh, between Greta Gerwig and Charlotte Rampling for me. Okay. Very good. All right. Moving on to our third category, which is the best scene of the year. All right. This had to be one of the most difficult ones for me to pick through just because there have been so many great scenes in in my favorite films for me this in, this entire year. But if I was really to, to whittle it down, if I had to choose, I would have to say my favorite scene is from Ex Machina. <laughs> um, when, and, and it's even one that, that Alex alluded to in our, in our part one where uh, Oscar Isaac as Nathan is talking to Donald Gleason's char- character, Gale- Caleb, about the nature of how he built the brain and how he had to use liquid instead of, instead of like wires and everything is like, and how he basically co-opted the entire, like the entirety of his, of his company blue books, like internet presence in order to kind of like collate, not what humans are thinking about, but how they think. And just the idea of, that being of, of of that being what what inter, what the internet is analogous to, especially with like things like Google, where you just like type in something and it just like remembers or just like builds upon it, and just like from not only what you've searched but what everybody else has searched, was so fascinating to me as a as a communication student that I just thought it was it was it was enrapturing, it was provocative. I wanted to have a conversation with him about that. Yeah. Even though he's a total fucking dick, and I'm sure that we would be at each other's throats if we were in the same room, but still, I think it was fascinating. So, that for me um, was uh, the best scene of this past year. So, yeah, very good. Yeah. So uh, I have a uh, an honorable mention, as I seem to have quite a few wow. of them, uh, and and uh, that was another Star Wars honorable mention. And uh, if you haven't seen Star Wars, I'm sorry, but you've been given ample time, and everyone chances seen, are you've seen Star yeah, Wars. So uh, if you look at the box office reports, yeah. So if you haven't seen it and you are going to be disappointed by knowing something about it, then I guess you can fast forward five minutes in our episode. But um, if you talk for five minutes, huh? Yeah, well, just, you know, giving myself a buffer. Just kidding. Um, The Han Solo death scene, which was... Wait, what? (laughs) Early on on when we talked about this episode, I I just... um, I I just love that scene just because it was one of those things where it seemed like it 
it was something that had to happen and it was going to happen, mm-hmm. but it was actually watching everything that happened around it and sort of the environment that it happened in and, and the incredibleness and the, and the, the magnitude I think of that scene is what brings it for me because it's, it's feels so staged and so brought up, but it just works on so many levels for so many different characters, whether it be Chewbacca's reaction or, or the actual lightsaber going through and seeing it coming out the other end, similar to so many other characters throughout the Star Wars, you know, and that, and that the red lightsaber going through and then him falling down the tube, like so many other, but it's just for me so much more impactful. Of, or Kylo Ren's uh, distraught face of seeing what he has done, having to, to reckon with that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, too, the, the new characters who we've just met and just looking down and, and almost like... <laughs> Their almost hope like, is just falling down a shaft. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't mean they, that no, as like a play they, out. Oh, okay, I meant like I their you. actual hope. They, they have, have to get a new hope. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's, it's, it's very interesting that, that it, almost this like theatrical viewing of this is they're almost like on a balcony watching a performance happening as, as a, a watching an old generation and a new generation almost killing off the old generation. It's, it's my it's, Star Wars now. Yeah, but it, it's it's very interesting that they had this this almost very interesting passing of the guard moment happen in this very scene, and it just worked on so many levels for me, and it was the antithesis of what this film was trying to do, and it worked so well, and I loved it. My favorite scene... Yeah, I was going to say, if that's your honorable mention, yeah, what's your favorite scene? My favorite scene was the absolute knocked-out-of-the-park scene uh, in the second act of Steve Jobs between Michael Fassbender and Jeff Daniels, which I thought was so fabulous, and it it just turned up the things the the entire film up to 11 and you're it, talking about the scene in which they recount the events of him being forced out yes. of apple right? in the hallway yes. with the chairs Just to yes. Make sure, yeah. yes and it's the confrontation that goes between that and them actually being real with each other for probably the very first time and that scene also involves uh flashbacks to to the night of when the firing happens and I'm, I'm not actually, actually sure of if that involves also the scene of them dying. I think that comes in the third act. Yeah, I believe that's later. But it, it, it's interesting how their relationship evolves throughout the film. And even though it's we're, we're seeing pretty much the same kind of things happening with them. But this scene is definitely an outlier. And it, it sort of mirrors the Waz uh, moment in the, in the third act that I talked about in the first part of uh, this review. But this scene is just done so well and it's so engaging and it also just totally had me on the edge of my seat in a in a talking film that is all about dialogue and it just was was just raging throughout it and it just was fabulous and it went on for quite a while like it was like an eight minute scene and it was just just pedal to the metal the entire time and in a year when we had so many films that were had great scenes that were action scenes this was a dialogue driven scene that was just so intense and I, I loved it and it was just fabulous. I just can't believe that the scene because I'm with you in the sense that I remember the first time I saw that scene and I was, I was on the edge of my seat as well and I was like holy shit like this movie I was loving this movie before and yet mm-hmm. now we're taking it to another level. I, I'm just so amazed and I think that's where Danny Boyle's direction comes into uh, effect that that scene works as well as it does which is wonderfully mm-hmm. uh and yet it still does incorporate flashbacks, which is kind of like the movie doesn't really do too often, but that's where it's the heaviest because it really goes for like an entire stretch of like now they're in the business office, now they're here, now they're here, now they're here as as they're telling the story. And yet it somehow never once interrupts the, I would say, like the cadence of their their, their talk. It like, keeps flowing yes. through, and even though we're 
non-linearly watching it yes. happen, we're able to com- easily put it together. It's completely it's fluid and a, a, extremely exhilarated. Yeah, and yeah. it's in a in a again completely dialogue-driven film. It never once throughout the entire film actually feels boring or anything like that. But in this scene, it's just totally dialed up to eleven, and it was fabulous. And uh, that was my favorite scene of the year. Well, I have no honorable mentions because there's only one scene <laughs> that rocked my socks this year. And it was done with a little help by a boy band named Backstreet Boys. Oh, man. And it's Big Dick Richie tearing it up in the convenience <laughs> store in Magic Mike Double XL. Oh, my God. Because let me tell you really quick, uh, this may sound like I'm joking, but I am not. And the reason why... I keep going back to this scene. Uh, it it just it's their faces pressed against the glass, isn't it? I know when they're like they're <laughs> yeah. like these little kids that are cheering them on, like whatever. Yeah. It's great. I think that this scene is the distillation of what I love about this movie as a whole, which is it's just a bunch of people putting on a show in the hopes that its audience will at least. Uh, connect with it on some level i mean that's all he's literally doing in the scene is when they're they're like trying to get uh her to smile and um and yet it does it with a some actually great choreography i mean like his i mean not great as far as like impressive but like you know like his little slide on the water that he had just sprayed everywhere like you know just as far as like it, it's it's one you know scene or whatever um and yet the thoughtfulness that somehow like the film never forgets it's, I would say, attitude with the world, which is, like, you know, a very optimistic one. Like, it, the the movie itself had me for the rest of whatever it did after. It didn't matter when, he, after he had done this dance, whatever, and he gets back up there. And he only gets her to smile because he asks how much for the water and the Cheetos. Like, when he did that, that was the line that just made me realize that this movie is never, like not self-conscious of its own actions and is just trying to put on a good time and yet also like that's like a valid thing that like because i when i was watching it i'm like who's gonna pay for those you know like whatever like even though i was like kind of half joking the fact that the movie doubles back on that and even in the middle of a damn scene would still make sure to comment on that i just it's a little detail but it's just that whole this is why i go to see a movie is for somebody to just try to make me laugh against all odds or not laugh but just you know smile and connect and it, it worked and Big Dick Richie, let me tell you. you know, Big Dick Richie. <laughs> another great part of that uh, scene is, is in addition to it being really funny and hilarious and on a lot of different levels, actually, it's actually an important character building scene for Big Dick Richie because yeah. he is going past having to be the fireman because he always <laughs> has to be the fireman. That's the fucking fireman. That's what Dallas told him he has to be and that's right. what he always has to be. And here he is like finding himself in, in enjoyment in what he's doing. And yes. it's, and it's, it's also, great. it's the piss is being taken out of it at the same time all the way through because they are on drugs. So it's like when they're having this conversation in the parking lot before they go in, when they're like, we changed women's lives, you know, like whatever, like, like they can have those conversations and a be not true or anything like that, but there is some validity to the idea of like, yeah, men paying attention to women is maybe something that's good and kind of life changing in certain people's lives. Um, but also B like their, their self importance is only raised on a pedestal because they're still coming down from uh, uh ecstasy or whatever they <laughs> took. So I just love that. It's both something that's simultaneously silly and yet genuine at the same time. And, uh, 
Yeah, if you haven't seen Big Dick Richie tear it up in a convenience store to Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way, then uh, you ain't living, my friend. <laughs> so that was my favorite scene of the, of the year. Nice. Well, we've had a lot of bests so far. Let's, uh, let's bring it down a little bit and uh, talk about our biggest disappointment of the year. Uh, and we'll start with Tucson. For me, this is no contest. Um, my biggest disappointment of this year was Michael Madsen's performance as Joe Gage in The Hateful Eight. I've already talked about my own conspiracy theory as to why he has such a minimalized role in this film. And you can go back to the episode and like check that out if you want to. But I was just personally, as, as a fan of Michael Madsen, I thought that that was what that was one of the things that was the main draw for me in that film to go see that film, to see what he would do with that. And he just, there was nothing. It was bone dry. And I'm, and I'm so disappointed. I, I yeah. can't. It's one of those things where like, I could totally, if that's what you were looking for, it's mm -hmm. completely defiant of that. Uh, yeah. I tend to think that it might've been purposeful as far as against type. Like he's always been the, well, not always, but... The magnetic center of attention. In Reservoir Dogs, he was the violent wild card. So I mm -hmm. feel like, especially that character in the film, like he just sits in the corner and doesn't say anything, so you're just <laughs> waiting for it to happen. But yeah. I can definitely see in the sense that he is the one character who gets kind of oddly sidelined, so to speak, uh, compared to all of the other characters. Uh, with all the other characters and their... Um, their aliases and their stories, like I feel like his is the less... It is, is the less, like... Uh, it, it's the least like expanded upon. Credible and yeah, credible yeah. and expanded upon. I'm just like, like, why did everybody else? You didn't fucking yeah. try, did you? Like, whatever, Joe Gage, whatever, cow puncher, get the fuck back to that corner. <laughs> he just wanted to get home to see Mama for Christmas. Yeah, no, I am in fact someone who loves seeing Mama <laughs> on Christmas. Okay, Bye. thanks for that very serious dialogue there, Joe. So that's my biggest disappointment, Joe Gage. Nice. I stuck with uh, films uh, for mine. One film is the the one I have lots of honorable mentions. <laughs> Jeez. Believe it or not, I, it's going to keep on going. I even have a three-way tie for one of my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you said I have a lot of honorable... I thought you meant for this category. Oh, like no, you have no. like 10 biggest disappointments. Oh, no. I'm like, Jesus. I have one. I was harsh. One that uh, was a, a film that I... I was hoping was going to be somewhat good, and it was not at all. And that was the Entourage movie. Oh. Um, and it's only really because I was a person who followed the series, and I enjoyed watching it. And the film just wasn't very good at all. So nope. that was disappointing. But my uh, definite biggest disappointment this year wasn't even a film that I would say was horrible. Uh, but I just really wanted it to be a lot better. And that was uh, the second Mockingjay of uh, The Hunger Games. Mm. I, I thought this was just an okay film, and I after how much I enjoyed the first three, I wanted this to be a lot better, and I just thought it was kind of there, and uh, like a lot of other films that close out either trilogies or a set of four films or a set of eight films or however many I call them, the closing chapter always seems to, or a lot of times, seems to have trouble, and uh, I thought this was no different as it... It just seemed to have a lot of things that I didn't care for. And maybe on a second viewing, I'll like it more. Uh, and there were certainly things I in enjoyed about it the first time through a lot. But um, I was just disappointed, I think. And um, it's too bad because I, I really wanted to like it a lot. And it just wasn't that great for me. So my biggest disappointment was The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. Well, since you have an honorable mention, I'm going to okay. mention one too. Um, one of my biggest disappointments was the film black sea okay um because i've thought that that 
cast and that premise, and even watching that movie, it still to this day, even if I haven't seen it since the the theaters, like it still to this day has so much potential that it never quite lives up to. And I just wish it would have went all in on one particular mood or atmosphere. Like it should have just became the slasher thriller that it kind of seemed like it was going to be in the trailer, or it should have just been a very technical thriller of like just surviving in the submarine or whatever because there's so many good elements of, but it was just kind of a waste of everything involved in that movie and especially it's, Ben Mendelsohn he's I totally mean, wasted him and Scoot McNary reteaming I mean come on man uh, so I, that's just a random little weird thing but I, uh, I'll always remember because we randomly saw this film with Kenny and yeah. his phone kept playing U2 for some yeah. reason during the and he, film. And he said it's like, that, that wasn't his ringtone, it just like kept playing the song. Know, like, but how did that happen? Your phone is not sentient. He, he couldn't get it to, like, he had to eventually turn his phone off, because he couldn't figure out what was playing U2, and he just eventually just turned his phone off. Yeah, 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 yeah. New Spotify yeah. feature, uh, every time you get bored in a movie, it'll just start playing U2 songs. Well, out. it kept on going, yeah. so maybe that was it. Um, so anyway, and I didn't even hate that movie, and I might yeah. even rewatch it, but I just, man, I I just thought it could have been a really good thriller, not saying a masterpiece or anything like that, but my biggest disappointment is I already kind of alluded to it on our top six list was uh, Noah Baumbach's While We're Young, as someone who loves that uh, filmmaker and loves his scripts, and the premise itself is uh, certainly in his wheelhouse. I was just uh, almost ashamed that he fell on the wrong side of the fence in this movie, so to speak, because he seemed to kind of villainize the younger generation and uh, glorify the older one. And I think a lot of people disagree with me on that. That's fine. Uh, you know, difference of opinions and all that. But uh, just even everything down to the final image, which is just a baby playing with an iPhone because it's like young people. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> it's just, he became uh, a character that he would have once chastised at least a decade ago. Um, but I'm glad to see, as obviously I've mentioned with Mistress America, that it seems like it was just a bad script and not like he's getting too old for this job or anything like that. I just remember, I'm not a like giant Noah Baumbach fa- fan at all, but I remember not really caring for this film either. And um, I just remember how kind of awkward and bad the relationship between Adam Driver and Ben Stiller was. Yeah. Especially in their like final climactic meeting together where they're having their conversation and it just the felt reveal so hollow. Yeah, it gets extremely misanthropic where it becomes that Adam Driver is apparently the Kaiser Sose of journalism direct uh, documentary mm-hmm. world because he has all these ulterior motives which completely derail any thematic resonance that the yeah. film was originally pining for. And I'm not saying I was loving the film before then, but the, the funny part is I completely <laughs> forgot about that whole storyline yeah uh <laughs> and i'm asking there are some moments because i do remember one scene that i was that was pure bumbach which was ben stiller's meeting with the person who was going to originally buy his documentary and he can't like explain what it is like that was just his verbal wordplay when i was pure bumbach but uh yeah that was just too many sitcom jokes uh with extremely uh out of place uh turns in the script so that was my biggest disappointment for sure i could see why all right, on to our biggest surprise of the year. This oh, should be a fun one. Okay, my biggest surprise of this year was Seth Rogen's turn as Steve Wozniak in Steve Jobs. Not saying that he's not a good, a capable actor, but just as we, we talked about before, like in our in our last half of this, this episode, like he perfectly exemplifies like what Steve Wozniak was as a character in this whole like 
story, this origin story of, of Apple and Steve Jobs, like my favorite scene in that film for me was in the, the second, the, the second turn when he's like branched out from, from Apple and he's trying to like create his own like computer and stuff. But really it's kind of like a bait and switch of like trying to get absorbed by Apple. The doesn't same even time. have an operating system. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't even have an operating system. And, and what's e- even more interesting about that, just as an aside, is that that is a viable like career path in Silicon Valley. Like talking to one of my friends in in, in Portland right now, who, hardware who works as you know, who works as a, a computer engineer, and just like yeah, it's like some people just completely build their entire company from the ground up and put all this money in there, and their one goal in life is to court Facebook or to court Instagram or to court Apple in order to be absorbed by them and then just like live off that for the rest of their lives, which they can. Right. And that's just fascinating that like Steve Jobs was sort of like, at least to my knowledge, maybe the progenitor of that entire like yeah. like field or whatever it is. Um, when, when they're in the, uh, the, the, the opera pit, and like Steve, like tells uh, Wozniak, he's like, you know, I'm going to give you a pass or whatever. And then Steve, then Seth Rogen is just like, what makes you think that you are the one who's allowed to give me a pass? And that was, that was like the 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 most like chest like thumping like like who the fuck do you think you are, Steve? Moment of this entire film for me. And I'm just like, you fucking tell him, man. Like. That that for me like was the prelude to the eventual like um, to the upswing of the, the the final confrontation with them when when you mentioned before Alex mm-hmm. that they all are that they confront one another in the middle of this auditorium with all these people like looking onward like I felt like this this is why why you pick pick Seth Rogen like oh my god like he he totally knocked it out of the park well there's so also happy. there's also a meta textual layer to his performance because he is a comedic actor in a dramatic film who's continually not taken seriously and i yeah. i think that that actually adds to that's why i said he's so perfectly casted is that yeah. he it just completely i agree with you the whole what do you do uh, speech moment where he essentially the worst part of that scene too and I don't mean the worst as in bad but like mm-hmm. the worst like oh god Steve uh, the knife twisting is when he says like what do you do and Steve Jobs actually has a awful but brilliant answer when he says I, I play the orchestra you know, I play the orchestra you like, are you, you play, play yeah. one role in it. and it yeah. doesn't make him uh, a good person yeah. uh, but he's not wrong well yeah. in in sort of oversimplifying their characters early in that scene too when uh, Wozniak is so excited to show him that terrible watch that he's made and saying oh this is such a great idea and Steve's like people are going to think you're trying to blow up a bomb if yeah. you wear that around how, how, do you, how do you change the uh, the the time zone it's like oh okay and he tries to unscrew it and everything it's yeah. Like, yeah but that's very much important of, of their real life relationship of a guy who's great at coming up with the technical aspects of something and a guy who's going to be able to sell it to people. Yes. One's the tinkerer and the other is the aesthetician. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is my, my biggest surprise of this year. It's like Seth Rogen's turn as Steve Wozniak and Steve jobs, like Bravo Seth. So, yeah. yeah. Right on my biggest surprise this year. And I do not have any honorable mentions for this Whoa, one. So that's a surprise. Hey, surprise. <laughs> my second out of five <laughs> that I, I, I just have one thing to say. And uh, that was a film I talked about in our, our first, uh, on our, our top six uh, part of this episode, and that is The Martian. Um, I have to say, I went into it not really being sure after The Counselor, 
Uh, and then that horrible movie. Exodus? Yeah, Exodus Gods and Kings that uh, he put out uh, in 2014. I just really thought that Ridley possibly had sort of put himself in a position where his, even his science fiction films weren't going to be any good anymore. And man, this just totally turned that around. And I, I, I thought The Martian was just overall a great film. But I, I think part of it was going into it with historically low expectations and then being blown away of how good of a film it actually was. Yep, you got to... Gotta put the put the bar underground in order to just step over it. It's like, yep. But I actually now have sort of at least hope that Alien re inspired. Yeah, yeah. That the the Alien film that he's putting together with the Prometheus characters is actually going to be possibly good. I'm just yeah. staring off into the middle distance, being like, <laughs> it's coming for me, isn't it? This death. All right, well, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. I I but I I have hope that it's it's going to be good. And I think Ridley Scott. Um, really turned his his career around at least a little bit in terms of where it was going in the projectile arc of of his career. Hope so, is good. Hope, hope is good. That's yeah. what we live on, man. Yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, the biggest surprise was Ridley Scott's The Martian. For me, uh, the biggest surprise is another film uh, that I was not expecting much from, and uh, I thought when I saw the trailer that it looked awful. Like, it was one of the worst trailers I've ever seen. And that's Adam McKay's The Big Short. Oh, I, yeah. I thought that um, I obviously liked the cast. And I, of course, I I don't think I was one of the people that would be turned off by a movie about the <laughs> the economic collapse of the, of the housing market. I mean, obviously, that movie can be very boring. But this is not that movie. And it surprised me in ways that I didn't think I'd be surprised by because I, I read so many reviews and that's what got me to see it about how it really does tell this story as is to in a mainstream package and it like you know it, it explains things and you know it uses celebrity cameos and whatever and and even even reading that I'm like this sounds a little hokey to me and uh I was kind of I was blown away by how complex it still is uh because it does, yes, it does explain things as it should because none of us have finance degrees. And even the people who probably work for half these banks don't even know. Uh, <laughs> and that's what we saw like, <laughs> as far as like, well, I didn't make these rules, you know, whatever. Um, and, and yet it still was like uh, – it kind of – for me, it answered a question that I wanted out of the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a movie I really liked. So I'm not trying to say that it should have done this, but I was – I'm just glad that we got a movie that kind of addressed the other side of that kind of attitude as far as like – you know, The Wolf of Wall Street is all about obviously – them taking advantage of what they can or whatever, but I always I just wanted to know well how does this work and how does this trickle down and actually affect these people you know whatever. But that was not concerned with that, which is totally fine. But I'm just glad a movie that came around and even if those are two completely different you know one's about the housing market, the other one's about stocks or whatever. Um, as this movie does not shy away from I would say every layer of like who's complicit in this and how it affects even the people that had nothing to do with this, whether it be like the mortgage buyers who were paying on time but their landlord just ran off and you know and that kind of stuff. Um, and it it's it's just one of the angriest movies I've ever seen without it feeling unearned. It's just if there's something to get angry about, it's this, and it's uh, it just kind of blew me away and how uh, how 
intricately shitty uh, the housing market is. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's, and I didn't think Adam McKay, even though his work had always had a political edge to it, because if, even if you, like, Anchorman 2, that's a satire on how cable news got invented. You know, like, mm-hmm. he's never necessarily not shown an interest in this, but the fact that he goes all in on his, I would say, first dive into something as complex as this was just incredibly uh, well-assured and, and handled. So, yeah, that was uh, my biggest surprise. It was a movie I loved that I did not think I'd even come close to. I am right with it, right there with you, where I thought the trailer made it look terrible, and I thought this was just going to be another throwaway, comedic, not as funny as they were trying to be film, and it had a lot of depth to it. And even though, as I mentioned to you, there were other films that have done something that's kind of similar to what this film is doing, whether it be kind of like The Wolf of Wall Street, which is something different, but still in the financial market, or or films like Margin Call, which is a really great J.C. Chandor film. Uh, Even though it's not doing anything necessarily new, I think this is doing something really well, which is is great. And it's a a funny film, it's a scary film, and it's um, an interesting film, which I think uh, says a lot of great things about The Big Short, which is, I think, a film that everyone should see. Yeah, and I think one really quick thing is that the reason why the trailer for me looks so awful and why this was like the biggest surprise and why I ended up liking it is actually when I started watching the movie itself, the big short, I think for the first five minutes I was still just as irritated as when I was watching the trailer because a just trailer residue, you know, residue coming still there, but B it's a movie. I think you have to get used to after a little, like just for a little bit, as far as this directorial style and like the way humor gets embedded into this narrative, which is never like cut to this person making a joke. It's always just kind of like it's happening amongst all this really deep, uh, financial talk so it's kind of like once you give me a hundred minutes to actually try to wade through this concept and uh, and these jokes or whatever then and have a little more room to breathe then it totally works but if you try to sell it to me in a two minute whatever it just looks like the most obnoxious thing ever <laughs> so yeah my biggest surprise is Adam McKay is the big short nice alright almost halfway done Whoa, so. we're getting there yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on to best action sequence okay for me there is no context contest that this category has to, for me, come from Mad Max Fury Road. I know that, like, a lot of them can, a, a lot of the, the action sequences can be kind of like dulled when given in comparison to one another, that they just, there's no start and stop. But for me, my favorite action sequence was from Mad Max Fury Road, and that was the one that followed after, um, it's the first one where Max and Furiosa actually fight together, and they're fighting off the uh, the the marauding like motorcyclists that are just like jumping up up and off the dunes, and they're just like hopping over the actual like war van, and they're just like trying to throw Molotovs and other shit like that. And you have Max on one side driving the car, who is like shooting over the shoulder with like this 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 nine millimeter, and then you have like Furiosa who's just kind of like pivoting back and forth and getting loaded with these these different shells from the from the different wives with this rifle and just like shooting the people out of the air while also being like hounded by um uh Immortan Joe's like like horde like his host I thought that was so fucking incredible just to see like these two people went from beating the living shit out of one another in, a, in another really good fight scene that I, I thought was just a really good personal fight scene to being so insipatico with one another and how they just deal out damage and destruction. I fucking loved it. 
So, yeah. yeah, that was my favorite action sequence. I gotta say really quick, props to George Miller for making an action movie and actually showing wide-angle shots of mm. the action happening because that is something that we have do not get in cinemas uh, at almost at all these days because you can't do that because otherwise you'd see where the seams are and not like how fake it is. But because this was mostly all practical or whatever, he can actually take the camera all the way so you can see the entire diorama of, you know, who's where. Mm-hmm. It's that, crazy. That was the one thing that I was so glad about that we actually got a chance to see this in, in IMAX 3D because this was uh, something that I talked about that made me so angry throughout the year that this really never got a chance at IMAX 3D. And then it, it out of nowhere was in the IMAX screen by us like two months after the film was released or more than that. Yeah. It was like a like, re-release. It was a re-release. It was like four months later. Yep. And I remember me and you went to go see it. And even though I didn't like the film as much after the second time, and I actually thought the 3d was terrible in this film. Um, I like seeing the, the landscape and seeing like the, the guitar player off in the corner and the, the, the band in the corner, and you've seen all the minor characters. The dupe warrior or something. Yeah. <laughs> but even though they're not in in the in the in the scene, they're they're there. Like yep. you can see them, and it's just great to see all that happening. Mm-hmm. And oh uh, man, that that's the scope of what Mad Max is doing. Is that's something no one can ever say anything against it with it because it's just all there for you in this epic. Like it feels like it feels like people would have felt the first time they watched the chariot scene in Ben-Hur. I, like feel, it, I feel like it was this, amazing. This, like the, the, the action sequences in Mad Max kind of like just rope into what I think my estimation of that film is in that it feels like the spirit of a, of an eighties action film of a purely eighties action film grafted to the, 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 the technical freedom of a, of a post 2000, like, like, like production cycle, you know, it's almost like it's the I haven't seen the others, so I'm not making this definitive claim, mm-hmm. but it in some ways might feel like the Mad Max film he's always wanted to create. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's my favorite action sequence. Nice, yeah. So this is the uh, the category where I have a three way tie at the top, of course. Well, then one of them bound to be one of mine. Is that like the? All right, let's let's see what your three way tie is. <laughs> let's see what it is. Okay, so my first three way tie is not even like honorable mention. You don't have one you like more than the no, other. No, I, I love all these, and I couldn't decide which. one. One was my favorite. Okay, let's let's see. What a dick. <laughs> what a this dick. fucking guy. All right, let's hear it. Ugh, just the worst. So uh, the first one I'll mention is uh, the scene in Mad Max Fury Road where the uh, the Citadel is chasing Furiosa for the first time. I mentioned this in our, our first part of this episode. Seems to be a running theme that we mentioned things <laughs> in the first part of the episode. Really, there's no point to this episode. <laughs> yes, there is. Just but. The, that chase scene is like the first time you get to really see what is going to be happening in this film. And, oh, man, I just remember the first time viewing it and just in awe of everything that happened in this scene, whether it be Tom Hardy as the home ornament of, of this and the the arrow zipping past his ear and be like, that's my fucking head, watch it, to the guy who is just the random throwaway warrior who gets shot with the arrow and then decides to basically have a suicide mission to blow up the car. And just the look on his face as he's jumping off there and landing on there and the car explodes and the scope of everything in the scene is just amazing. And we get the, the, the great finale of this scene, which is the terrific use of CGI with the uh, tornado that's happening that just comes in on, on our characters as they are driving through here. And it's just this 
this this unwinnable situation of of this sand tornado that is blowing away cars and just crazy shit just happening off the wall and it was just a incredible action sequence the second one was the finale in furious seven which was just so much fun uh everything just all culminates here as a lot of these films normally do but right after the rock breaks off his cast we have all of these characters who are having their own really little difficult different battles and uh, everyone has is like paired off with somebody and everyone, although it's all happening together is having their own battles. And it's, it's great to see everyone battling against each other in a helicopter going against the huge gun that the rock has. We have Deckard Shaw and um, Vin Diesel having their big one-on-one fight. And it's just great to watch these happen. And we get the great finale between Paul Walker and Tony Jaw then. And it's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, a tide right there too. And, uh, the film that I thought was really disappointing, which was The Hunger Games Mockingjay, gave me a great action sequence, which was the fight between the Resistance and the Mutts in the sewer, which was the one part of that film that I thought was absolute standout because it was just a great visual like explosion to see this happening after um, something that you mentioned, Nick, on the episode, which was actually great tension that was built up because it did not go with the first moment of oh here they come oh so never go with mind the second or third moment yeah <laughs> and then once it happens though it's just like balls to the wall craziness that ends in uh one of the main characters dying and, and giving a mercy killing at the hand of katniss but that scene was just so fantastic and even though it's really short it's only probably like about two minutes long yeah, it it is a, just a huge payoff for a, a lot of other kind of staleness in that film. So those are my three, and I, I couldn't decide which was the best out of them. I love them all for for different reasons, and they were all great. They, so those are my best action sequences of the year. They are. I I have one, and that is also from Furious Seven, <laughs> and it is the Ramsey rescue on the mountain. Uh, okay, for me that was the crowning moment of. The, the movie, maybe of a series as far as just action-wise. Uh, it is a action scene that is essentially a three-act play. I mean, there's uh, it starts with them dropping planes out of a car, and it ends with... You mean like cars a, out of a plane? Yes, that's what That I would meant. be really something. Yes, it starts with... Furious uh, 8. <laughs> oh, please, let's have that. Uh, no, it starts with, yeah, what you said, um, dropping cars out of a plane, uh, and it ends with a bus on the edge of a mountain you know barely whatever um this is there's just so much to it that as far as humor action and it's so well shot like i'm not saying like what i what i just praised uh, mad max for a few moments ago about how it's wide angle shots there's not that many wide angle shots here but there's definitely enough establishing shots for you to really get in the mindset that this is happening you know um and another thing to connect it actually to mad max is that i also don't want to hear about how and i like this in mad max but how mad max is like the only film to use practical effects because in various seven they actually drop cars out of a plane just to get the shot at i'm not saying people were in those cars or anything like that but this is a movie that could have very easily just did CGI at so many points, but try not to because they try to get what they can. They actually do put people on the hoods of their cars and whatnot. Um, and so when you have this unfolding and you have like Paul Walker on the hood of one car jumping onto a uh, armored bus so that he can hand to hand combat with Tony Jaa as um, as uh, Tyrese is up spinning around on a parachute. I mean this this three ring circus act of an action scene just never once fails to entertain me from 
start to finish. And it's actually a pretty decent stretch. It's like 25 minutes or so if you count from the very first moment when they're up on the plane to when uh, the Niesel's character starts driving down the mountain, which is another great little, like, F you, like, just because, like, I, I just love Dominic Toretto's fascination with, like, kind of, like, playing chicken with things, whether it be with a car or with the the, the bottom of a cliff, you know, like, uh, just it's just great. And so that's definitely my favorite action sequence uh, of last year. Nice. All right. Halfway through. So let's uh, move on. And this was uh, a category that I thought would be really fun. And that was a uh, best ending of a yeah. film. So, best ending. <clears throat> I have one honorable mention, and I have my obvious pick. My honorable mention is from Dope, because personally, I think that the the ending um, with Malcolm like finally like deciding what he wanted to say in his college acceptance, like his his college application letter, like I felt like a lot of the things that he said in that letter like really spoke to me. And really just like deeply like like emotionally like I, I feel where that kid is coming from and I was like I wanted to root for that kid and I, I, I don't know. It's just like that for me of the pinnacle was the pinnacle for like when Malcolm became me in my eyes. Yeah. Like and I love that shit. Um I'd have to say that my my favorite ending of this year, the best ending for me was from It Follows. I thought I thought it was great. I thought that um the combination of, of scenes that, that go into that where you're you're seeing uh, after the the creature's supposed destruction or anything like that. So you're talking about everything after the pool sequence? I'm talking about everything after the pool sequence, like Jay uh, kind of consummating her, her relationship uh, with one of her one of her friends. Uh, you see the the the, the tossed aside like picture photo of who that creature was was actually emulating in their final like thing. It's like it was actually like her father or stepfather. I think it's, yeah stepfather. Yeah and I thought that was just I, I totally missed that on the first go, but as soon as I came back to it, I was like, oh my god, that's so fucked up, man. Um, and then you see uh, Jay's friend just, like, driving around in, like, the seedier parts of Detroit with, like, the prostitutes or whatever. And it's like, you don't even need to s- to say or see what's going to happen. You know why he's there, and you know what he's going to do, and you know why he's doing it. And then you see at the end, like, these two, this lo- this young couple... That are kind of like dressed in this this very it, it's it's I don't even want to call it chaste, but I want to say like it's very um, it, it's almost akin to something virginal, whereas like there's the the balance of like white and black in their in their outfits, which I thought were very beautiful, and they're just holding hands and walking down uh, walking down a cul-de-sac, and then you see in the it, it matches like behind them and then in front of them where they can't see, and you see what looks like a character walking towards them slumped over in the same type of manner as the creature as we've known it. And it then ends like from behind them, them just like walking down the length of this sidewalk and you hear these kids playing in a field or whatever. And, and again, that's that diegetic like sound design that comes together to create this space that is so awesome. And then it just smash cuts to the actual title of the, the film with disaster pieces like music that just swells out of it. I know that ending pissed off a lot of people because they need to have the gratification of seeing what's going to happen. But for me, like I enjoyed that because in my mind's eye, it is far more terrifying than what could, than what could be like committed to film to oh, seeing sure. like the character of 
of like Jay's boyfriend being just eviscerated by this creature and then her being being killed as well. We also if if anyone wants to use that argument of not knowing, you know some things of what happened because if, if I'm not if I'm not incorrect with Jeff, I am you mm-hmm. can but if I remember correctly the the friend who's like her best friend throughout mm-hmm. the film yeah. isn't she in the opening sequence and we see her getting killed so it's almost like no a, that's a that's, random person that's just, right? that's just a random person yes. like there's she there's another friend of hers uh, mm. played by Olivia Lucardia okay. uh, the the one with the glasses who's basically like reading off the clamshell like thing and yeah. I I actually realized like what she's actually reading from it's uh, Dostoyevsky's the idiot. Which uh, one of my friends thought that was very heavy-handed. I I didn't know anything about it, so I can't really like speak to that. But like after like listing back to that text or whatever, is like it's all about foreshadowing the the inevitability of death and how we reconcile. With yeah, it. it's really supposed to just show the scope of it, which is like this is completely unrelated, and yet it's still oh, okay. spreading. And I thought only... she looked just like her her one friend. Which I mean, they all kind of look certainly yeah. similar. Okay. But the other thing is, it's also the pretty stereotypical, not a bad way, but oh. cliched horror trope of killing off someone first mm. who's has like almost no impact on the plot just to show how it works in a, in a sense uh, you hear about that fisher the girl real... the fisher girl who died at the lake a couple of years ago yeah, nobody like ever that. found her body but also not giving her a name or a character and just showing how this is just a a, a symptom of mm. something much larger so mm-hmm. yeah right on yeah so my best ending i have a uh i have an honorable mention believe it or not <laughs> Uh, and that was kind of a surprising one when I thought back and, and thought about the, the endings of every film that I saw this year. And, and this one was, was number two on my list. And that was the ending to the film Slow West, uh, which uh, some people uh, liked more than others, and I would be one of them. I just thought this film was very much kind of going back to that original Western feel with more of a modern kind of feel to it as well, but still living true to the kind of the Western feel in some parts of the film. And I think that's what I love so much about the ending of this film is that this has a story that kind of slowly plots through. And then we get an ending that I thought was just fabulous, which is just a good Western shootout that goes on for 10 minutes. It's one of the best Western. Like, I'm not a fan of that movie, but that mm-hmm. ending is that that shootout is one of the best Western, maybe any kind of shootouts I've ever seen. Because it just seems to go with here's they add up everything that is in the storyline and then it just ends like it just ends because this this shootout happens and it it really pulls no punches either like even though certain characters live and certain characters die it 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 just seems like anyone is up for getting killed off in this scene because it's just this crazy finale shootout and it it just went from a a movie that i felt like it took a movie that I, and I thought I was watching and turned it into something totally different. And it brought my rating from that film up an entire star just because even though I was liking what it did originally, the ending of that film totally made it for me. And I just absolutely loved it. And um, I'm so glad it ended the way it did. But the actual ending that I thought was fabulous and far and away the best ending of the entire year was the ending of Ex Machina. Um, yeah, that ending just was so good and so well done. And it, it was surprising to me too, because I, I guess I hadn't thought that was going to be what the ending was of the film. And I think that's what, what made it so great is because I wasn't expecting it. And it was just so restrained on so many different levels, but yet it was, it was so forceful on so many other levels and it just worked out in every way, shape and form. And Every time I think more about it and watch it again, I'm just blown away by how 
how crazy good that finale is of Ex Machina. One thing that sells that ending for me is just like the music that's playing in the background, that it has like this twinkling kind of like music box feel to it. And you see uh, Ava dressed in this very resplendent, uh, like simple, like white dress, like walking onto a, uh, a helicopter in order to be taken to civilization and then just standing in this epicenter of people. But you don't see her. You see her reflection and how she kind of like fades into the in, into the to the group i thought that was for me that that was almost invocative of a of, of a of a story picture book-esque ending like which is so macabre to think because you see caleb is going to be left to die yep. like uh nathan is 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 dead yeah. and yeah. and no one will ever know the truth until probably it's too late yeah. Yeah. And I also love that just that final image like you're talking about of her the reflection or whatever is how like that's and then all these other humans walking around here and how that's gonna be the actual start of the Turing test. And mm-hmm. because that's that was one of my things when I was watching the movie was I'm like, This isn't a Turing test because he's been told and of course then they address that because he says that never was the test or whatever. But I love how that's like the test now will begin and, and that's a scary well, thing. And, and and the test was more for her, not for for them is would he, could he finally create an AI that could figure out how to escape from this maze that yep. he's created? And he finally does. And unfortunately... Yay, technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, for Nathan, I feel like that was an important part for me, is that he always was going to die there at the hand of his creation. You done fucked up, man. But, well, I don't, I don't really think so. And we talked about this a little bit on the episode, but I, I, I don't feel like he's disappointed in the ending. I feel like he's... He's almost like creepily satisfied. Yes, yeah. and it's it's kind of a weird way to look at it, but I, I think that's how his character feels at the end of that film. Now, Caleb, on the other hand, just gets fucked over hardcore, mm-hmm. and he's left in a fucking saw room to rot for the rest of his life. So that sucks. <laughs> it's but, a little nicer than the saw room, but like, still, you're gonna die in that room. Yeah, there's so many ways to look at the finale, and so many things to pick apart from it, and it's just so enjoyable that it was. Head and shoulders above every other finale from this year for me. So that was my favorite ending this year from Ex Machina. Well, my uh, I do have an honorable mention, which is the scene I already talked about when I praised Charlotte Rampling's performance, mm-hmm. which is that the ending to 45 years is fantastic. And I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to talk about it, other than just everybody should go see it and watch that <laughs> bravura of a performance. So my favorite ending, though, is from a movie I haven't actually mentioned at all yet uh, on this or the last part of this episode, which is Tangerine, mm-hmm. um, which is, like I think it was like number 15 on my overall list. So I really... Was that- is that the, uh, the cell phone film? Yes, it was okay. shot entirely on an iPhone, and it was it premiered at Sundance. Like, just saying those things makes me almost want to gag because, like, that is, like, that... It, it, it's that mentality. It's that so that, precious. Yeah, so it's precious. World of Tomorrow again, right? And like, it's, no, not World of Tomorrow. I mean, Escape from Tomorrow. Right. Yes. Yeah. Where it's like, is this just a gimmick or is this a movie? And it absolutely is a movie. First of all, I love the movie itself, and B, it earns that uh, gimmick, so to speak, because it actually captures a beautiful portrait of LA that you could only really do in this lo-fi setting. So it it totally worked. Um, but the movie itself. It chronicles uh, um, these two gen- uh, transgendered uh, female prostitutes who one of them just gotten out of jail and she's very upset because she heard that her 
uh, ex-pimp boyfriend, not ex, but her pimp boyfriend that she had before she went to prison, uh, was cheating on her when, you know, she was in prison. So it's like this odyssey of her just walking across uh, the streets of L.A. to try to find him. And A, the set piece when... uh, she does find him. I don't think that's really a spoiler because that's where the movie's headed. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful sequence that completely lives up to the manic energy because this is kind of a comedy first and foremost uh, that she, uh, she brings as the character of Cindy uh, to this movie and it totally lives up to... you. Like The minute you meet her, uh, Cindy, you're like, this is not going to end well because she has a very explosive personality and whatnot. But then the final scene, which is after the big confrontation, is uh, just kind of completely caught me off guard because for a movie that was primarily comedic, even though it had some great emotional kind of truth and whatnot, um, completely foregoes all of that as two friends have to kind of reconcile uh, some damage that's been done to them. Uh, and and unfortunately, it happens out of, uh, I don't want to say tragic circumstances because it's not tragic, but uh, out of an act of malice from an external party. Uh, somebody else does something not so cool. Not so chill, <laughs> Yeah, so Because I don't want to ruin it either. Like When it happens, it's just a very split-second thing, and it brings these two people back together who were originally friends and still are uh, in just one of the sweetest scenes I've seen in any movie. And the fact that that's the note it wants to end on is such a telling, telling message. Um, uh, and yeah, I just, I, I just smile just thinking about like the image of uh, what one person gives to the other and uh it's just terrific so and the whole movie is terrific so everybody that's on netflix and you should watch tangerine at some point okay right on so uh our eighth category is the best use of a song okay so just to preface this this is my my uh runner up just because like i wish that we we had had a category for score because i feel like i have to make mention again of disaster pieces score for it follows i'm just going to say this if you see that film and you don't think that score fucking is a fucking banger and that you want to like listen to it on on like halloween night like, come on, man. It's I, really good. I hated the film It Follows, and I have the score from that film on my iPod. So <laughs> yeah, see, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, I think that the best use of a singular song, like not originally composed for the film, I'm going to have to like give it to uh, Mad Max for its use of, and I wrote this down, uh, Mesa de Requiem de Asira Tuba Miram. Which is used both in the... Uh, it's the one in the trailer. It's the one in the trailer, and yeah. it's also the one in the scene with the bullet farmer when he's blinded, and he has to like use these two d- double-barrel guns, and he's just like firing off into the distance <laughs> just trying to like kill everything. And I just thought it was so opera- operatic and so... <laughs> like. It, it was so over the top and, and beautiful in a way, in that this insanity of this man who's just been been denied like sight is going to just like lay waste to everything within his path whether or not he can see it or not like for me it kind of was invocative of john goodman's turn as madman munt in barton think which is another one of my favorite films so i i absolutely ate that shit up and i thought that the music absolutely was what made that moment for me so yeah it's definitely going to be uh mad max nice yeah uh, my uh, favorite use of a song was in the uh, the film The Hateful Eight, uh, and actually involves the character Joe Gage, as uh, he is kind of weirdly stalking the uh, the last survivor of the haberdashery after they murdered off everyone who was inhabiting it before them. Yeah. 
and uh, he just kind of slowly walks around the entire haberdashery and follows the blood trail in the song uh, called Now You Are All Alone by David Hess's playing. And it's not even because I, I really got with the lyrics or anything. I just, the mood that song set and the way it, it just created that moment for me, I just absolutely ate it up because um, I'm not usually one who gets too into uh, actual music. And I, lo- I love scores, as, as you may may not know from listening to this. I Scores make films a lot of times for me because a, a good piece of music in a film can really create something that's, you know, just okay and make it great. But um, I'm not huge on, on actual music in films. And even though I like it a lot of times, it's not my favorite thing. But for some reason, that piece of music just stuck out to me. And I really enjoyed it both times I saw the film. And maybe part of it is because uh, Michael Madsen's character really had nothing in this film that really stood out in a good way. And this was the one thing that I thought was so slow and, and it just really wasn't that important. But it just seemed to really bring that situation home and make it that much better because it's just the you're following his back as he's slowly walking around and eventually just going to kill this poor guy who just really just wanted to escape because he just got caught in the crossfire of this bullshit that he has no no involvement in <laughs> this bullshit but it just uh the, the way the song progresses and the way the shot goes on of uh, michael madsen's character walking around the haberdashery is just Almost flawless, I would say, and I, I loved it. Tarantino, I have to say, with his most recent output, is getting more precious with his song choices because, I mean, he's always been fantastic at choosing songs. Absolutely. But like he, ever since he started incorporating scores, because he hadn't always been doing that, uh, ever since he started incorporating like actual musical scores into his movies, I think he's been even more... Uh, conscious, yeah, selective about which songs will make it, and like in, in the Hateful Eight might be one of his most stripped down because it only features three songs, four songs if you saw the Roadshow because they play a song during the intermission when it comes back. Uh, they play a, I don't know what that song is, but three songs of the regular release, and. All three songs, I've like actually, because I'm obsessed with that movie, looked at the lyrics to them and whatnot, and it's kind of like I cackle when I read the lyrics and I realize that even when you get that far into each element of this movie, it still somehow ties back into the thematic material, yeah. including that song, and that song was a great, great uh, uh, choice for that scene, considering that scene was nothing special, I think, until he put that song in there. Yeah, I totally agree, and it, and it worked in a lot of levels, and I... It, turned a scene that would have just been kind of monotonous yeah. and turned it into something and w- that was really special for me. Just because I generally forgot the name, but what was the name of the song and the artist? Uh, the song is Now You Are All Alone, and the artist is David Hess. That's right. So, I think I'm going to download that on my iPod. I am as well. So, my... Oops, sorry, did you have a... No, that, okay. w- that was it. Uh, my favorite use of a song um, comes from courtesy of Jennifer Jason Lee. Ah. But it is not from The Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, ha, ha, gotcha. <laughs> it is from Anomalisa, because the character she voices, uh, Lisa, uh, at one point during the kind of hotel tryst between Lisa and uh, David Lewis's character... Um, she mentions that she loves karaoke and that she likes to sing songs, even though she's quote unquote really bad at singing because she's a very self deprecating person and very insecure. Uh, David Lewis's character basically encourages her because he's so enraptured by her that he just wants her to keep talking or do something, you know, and so he's like, oh, you should sing or whatever. So she starts singing like a, you know, she's not like playing a guitar or anything like that. It's just her singing. 
a uh, her own version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper, and it's just incredibly mellow and almost depressing, but not depressing, but like beautifully sweet and slow take on what's uh, usually such a kitschy song, you know, and, and of course, uh, David Lewis's character is just staring at her even more enraptured that she just chose this song out of all of them, you know, uh, to be this to be in this moment, and that's why it just it completely owns that moment because just as the audience, just like him, you're just completely taken aback by the song choice that you then get sucked into, like, oh my god, this is amazing, and not because it's like the greatest thing you've ever heard, but it's just somebody burying their soul, because, even though they don't really want to, and and that says more about her than like maybe some of her own actual words that she says, and so I just I just a she's got a great singing voice because I think that's why she's just singing another movie this year like The Hateful Eight, and mm-hmm. uh, so. Um, it was just such a weirdly tender moment in a movie that's completely full of them from uh, scene to scene. So, yeah, girls just want to have fun. If you want to see a pretty stripped-down version, go watch <laughs> Anomalisa. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, on to uh, the best opening title sequence. This should be an interesting category. Okay, yeah, it should be interesting because this is pretty much my pet category. <laughs> like, I, I don't think I have to tell you guys how much I fucking love a good title sequence. And that's what made it even more bizarre for me this year to, like, look back on, like, some of my top films in that, like, a lot of my favorite films, they don't have title sequences. They have title cards or they have, like, smash cuts at the end. And that was just confounding After you had said that, because I'm with you, maybe I don't even like them as much as you do, but I definitely, I love the the site, the art of a title and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I started looking at my list, I was like, holy shit, there's, like... And the the two obvious ones, which are not ones that I mentioned, so I won't even mention them right now, but are two franchises that are known for doing mm. title sequences that I'm like, but but yeah, outside of that, there was not a lot of competition. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was pretty sparse, and I didn't feel like choosing something that was just as simple as like a like an overlay. But I thought that this film in particular, for me, like worked as a as a great uh, title sequence that also served as exposition. And that was uh, Kumiko, the Treasure Hunters uh, title sequences, which is using this really sparse, beautiful, minimalistic string score by a, a group called the the Octopus Project. I'd never heard of them before, but I'll probably like look them up now. And just seeing uh, Kumiko, like for whatever reason, on this Japanese beach, finding this 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 uh, discarded. Uh, VHS tape and then riding the train back and going through the terminal and you see like the in 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 the bottom opposite corners like left and right you see Rinko who's the director of the film and you see like the uh, the title card of Kumiko the treasure hunter with like this scrawl of like Japanese kanji on the side which I'm I'm of two minds of like I think that obviously I think that kanji is very aesthetically distinctive and very interesting i just don't like it when it's used in 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 a in a in a in a reappropriative way I, I like I, I feel the same way about that as i feel about like like japanese people wearing like english t-shirts that they can't even wear you know what i'm saying like we're just like joe's crab shack and 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 octopus emporium and they have no idea what the hell it says they just thought that the the letters look cool man it's like getting a japanese tattoo and you can't even read it um so yeah my yeah you know what i'm talking about um my favorite opening tile sequence this year was uh for okumiko the treasure hunter 
there were not a lot of options here, as uh, <clears throat> you guys already mentioned. And uh, the the one um, honorable mention I, I will say is a, a, a title sequence that I know Nick you hated, and I'm assuming you did too as well, Tucson. And that was the I thought very fun opening title sequence of Ted Two. Um, I can't even remember. I was just saying I don't even remember. <laughs> oh, it was a don't, very... don't wait. Don't give me nightmares now. Oh, okay. What is it? It was uh, a very like old timey, supposed to be this big dance number production. Oh, oh god, yes, god. that was awful. Continue. Yep. Yeah, it's no, another, it, another Family Guy riff right there. Yeah, and I, I don't know why. The same I, thing. I, I, I just seemed to be okay with it, and I enjoyed it. And I forgot about that. One of the only ones, apparently, because most people did not care for it, just like they didn't care for Ted Two. But I liked I the movie, and I pressed that man. movie. That's okay. That's yeah. totally fine if you want to, because I could see why. But I, I'm probably gonna end up buying it because I enjoyed both times I saw it. And mess I liked around. The, I like everybody <laughs> doing the mess around oh, again. Man, the, the the bit they had about the. Uh, the versus films with Alien versus Predator and Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> that was a great joke. That yeah. was a great that joke. Was, yeah, yeah. That was, and there were a lot of like great gags in that film. I thought uh, the other one op- that was kind of the obvious choice, and I again was out on a boat. Is the only person I think who actually really enjoyed the opening title sequence of Spectre. No, I like those. Did you? Yeah, I okay. always maybe I've come around on them, but I don't know that that was my one of my big problems and, with that movie. But uh, yeah, I I think uh, I I feel like I really enjoyed it, and I mostly heard that people thought it was terrible and i i, I, I disagreed I like both i like i guess i would say i like the song more than i like the actual sequence like mm-hmm. i think the tentacle porn was a little excessive <laughs> um but i, I didn't can you say that again the tentacle porn was a little excessive yeah uh but i i, I didn't dislike it i mean it's bond yeah i, I thought it was <laughs> through and through what it was trying to usually be and i don't really like sam smith and i like the song and i like the i actually liked all the visuals even the tentacly things and i just liked it so. tentacle porn the tentacly yeah, things yeah. tentacle porn yeah that was weird <laughs> under the sea oh my god where so. it is wetter <laughs> waiting for me so anyway that was my favorite opening title sequence in uh, the film specter yeah that was oops i just really jumped right in there yeah that's fine so it's like when like it's like when a racer you know is like up at the starting line and then they just go before the gunshot. Anyway, you're disqualified. You it's, it's your turn now. now. Go ahead. Sorry, I don't know why I was like sprinting okay. out of the game. <laughs> we'll just we'll just remember that for the future. Yeah. We'll put a bookmark in it and just yeah. remember that. Okay. Put a bookmark. <laughs> well. Okay, so uh, what I was mentioning earlier about how, like, the, when I first thought about it, the, the only examples that came to my mind were James Bond and Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. because they always do titles. Like, now, James Bond obviously always does, like, different and, like, you know, tries to get a new song or whatever, whereas Mission Impossible, the exact opposite, where it just, like, always tries to do that same throwback. Uh, although there's one of the five that didn't do it. I think it's number two. I forget. But anyway, uh, and so I, like, by default decided not to pick them. But uh, then I also started, like, I had to really, search and I had to think about movies that didn't necessarily do a title sequence but kind of what you mentioned and did overlays mm-hmm. uh, so absolutely the uh, my favorite title sequence is easily Furious 7's uh, opening so to speak when mm. Jason Statham blows up an entire hospital while that rap song is going on after he just said to the nurses to take the best possible care out of his brother which I feel like is counterproductive but uh, <laughs> that was you like you just compromised that their their ability to do so sir yes sir <laughs> 
<laughs> that moment uh, from even just like he takes the fucking elevator, you know, like down or whatever, like that whole moment while the titles are like so ridiculously obnoxious and like characters in the scene and whatever. I, I, I ate that shit up. That was for sure. Um, the most I was like, oh, my God, like that's how I knew that I was going to love that movie. Um, <laughs> but one I also want to an honorable mention I want to shout out to is a movie I just watched last night. Uh, it's called Heaven Knows What, and it is a semi-fictional uh, account of, and I'm going to look her name up so that way I don't get it wrong, of uh, Ariel Holmes. Uh, she wrote a memoir a memoir uh, that never has actually been published because she wrote it in like an Apple store about her times of being homeless and a heroin addict. And this is kind of like the Requiem for a Dream of 20, you know, of this new millennial generation, uh, but a much better film in my opinion because I think that movie has a lot of stupid things to say, like, don't do drugs, which is, like, well, obviously, but uh, this movie actually has some character and whatnot, but it's just as harrowing to watch and whatnot, and the opening title sequence is kind of frightening in its simplicity. It's I kind of have to give some context really quick. The opening scene of the movie is uh, is Ariel Holmes and her you know, in the movie, fictionalized boyfriend, but it's got the same name as the her actual, I don't know, again, boyfriend. They're both heroin addicts. It's her going into the public library um, and trying to get her boyfriend to, like, come and, like, just talk to her because he's very, apparently very mad at her and whatnot. And um, he is uh, not talking to her, so she basically says, all right, fine, will you forgive me if I kill myself? And he says yes. So it then becomes this war of, like, her going to get razor blades, coming back and saying, are you okay? Like, I can, I, can, I, do, can I do this? And then he's saying, yeah, whatever. So it, she does end up trying to commit suicide uh, in the middle of the street. And so then, uh, because they call an ambulance, um, because they didn't think she would actually do it, then it goes into a, a completely wordless scene in which the title sequence is essentially scenes from her stay in the mental institution that they sent her to, uh, scored beautifully, because the whole movie is scored beautifully, by Ariel Pink's score. Uh, mm. Yes, yes, and she uh, just... Ariel Pink does terrific work for this movie, and like these almost Lynchian title cards, like like that come straight out of like Twin Peaks, are playing over what are these wordless like montage of her stay at this mental institution. And what I love is that the font of the title cards and like the director of photography, whatever, are so obnoxious that it's like they're black text with white borders. I mean, they're just like "Look at me" type thing. And look at me. <laughs> yes, I'm Mr. Meeseeks. Look at me. Um, and it's what. I kind of love is the message for me at least like I love that this it's it it dares you to not pay attention with what's happening actually on screen because she is undergoing treatment and she's not having a good time and whatnot and and yet you have these titles that are almost like saying like you don't really want to watch her story and I feel like it does thematically tie into the idea that she was very like ignored by society as a lot of addiction users can be especially when they're homeless yeah. uh, and it just mirrors so many other scenes in the movie where she's passed by by civilization as she kind of wallows in her own like filth and mm-hmm. whatnot and so i just i was just kind of astounded by how uh just a simple thing like just the font you use and the score you use can take something that uh just like you and comment on the background and the foreground. And uh, it's just, besides the fact that it's a great movie, uh, just that title sequence really is like a surrealistic nightmare. It's fantastic. So that was a heaven knows what. Hmm. Okay. okay. All right, let's move on to best theater experience. Oh, man. <clears throat> I've seen so many films this year, but there are only a handful of the theater experiences that like speak out to me. And I think that 
well, well, as a follow-up for, for, for my, my best theater experience, I think that like when we went to go see the, the roadshow version of Hateful Eight, that was a, a stand-up for me for many different reasons. One, because I got to see some of the, the, the ugliness of my, of my fellow patrons laid bare in, in, in their reaction to comedy. But at the same time, like I can't really speak because one part that I was cackling at that no other person was cackling at was a scene that was involving Samuel Jackson and a certain uh, confederate old man in a, in a story, uh, just basically him clutching his pearls underneath this blanket and just re- reviling in horror. I was like, I, I actually got kind of a kick out of that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm a monster. I'm sorry. No, um, there's plenty of people laughed at plenty of parts. Yeah, yeah like oh my god, they're hanger. <laughs> yeah, like like incredibly awkward long laughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'd have to say that my best theater experience for this year was straight out of Compton because I went to go see it with my friend uh, Adam Adam Nowak who was way into hip hop before I was like, he was one of the people who really like put me on for a lot of like different like things. And we went to go see the movie together and we were just having a ball. It was, it was, it was incredible. Like seeing this, this whole story play out. And eventually the, the, the ending of the, the movie, which I thought was awesome, but also kind of, kind of grating because it, it kind of, it jumped from like, Dr. Dre announcing that he was going to like split off from from Death Row Records and create his own label, which would become Aftermath, and then it jumped forward in time, kind of like this montage of like all of these different things that Dr. Dre and Ice Cube went on to accomplish. Not mentioning the other two members of of the surviving members of NWA. <laughs> That's what I told you. Yeah. But we were just laughing in the theater while everybody else was leaving, and I. <laughs> And and I was just uh, just getting so hype, and we were we were talking about stuff, especially with like Suge Knight's like the character of Suge Knight's like like face of of horror like at the end. And I was I was joking with my friend Adams, like I don't know if you guys know this, but like I think like a year ago, like Suge Knight like was in jail and like going through like trial for like, in, it was actually involved with this movie because he came off Offset. And he got into his car and he actually drove over somebody with his his fucking truck. Like he's a fucking monster. Let's just put that out there. Suge Knight is a fucking monster. He's wow. he's the fucking Rasputin of hip hop. He will not die. He will not go to jail. Um, and I was just talking with my friend Adam. He's like, you know, you know why why Suge Knight got so mad is like they showed him a clip from this movie. He just went fucking bonkers and killed some people. It's <laughs> like I wouldn't put it past him. Uh, so yeah, that was that was the hardest <laughs> I laughed in a theater. And uh, yeah, so that was my best theater experience straight out of Compton. Right on. Yeah. Go. So I have a an honorable mention. Believe it or not, I don't. Uh, and then uh the, my actual uh, best theater experience so uh, my honorable mention uh is when we went to go see jurassic world because oh, man. Uh, i just have to say i feel like i haven't had as much fun in the theater this year uh-huh. and it's not because of the film at all it's because the audience <laughs> just was hell, yeah! hell-bent on having a good time in yeah. that th- theater and there was alcohol involved and you know what I had a good time watching that movie for the first time, yeah. and um, that final scene was incredible. And the most egregious, thunderous applause at the end of the film when that final dinosaur jumps out of the water and right. bites the Ad- Adonis Rex, and like, like 
audible applause and hooting like and hollering. There's like fist pumping. You! I can't even. I, I can't even front. Like I was one of those people. Yeah. I, I but that's what I'm saying front. too. So yeah. was I. It was like this communal. I was not because I don't have fun. <laughs> I don't like fun. It was this communal weird thing, just like sporting events or other things like that. It just it just was the environment of it, and it was just fun and. Going to see it the second time and being brought back down to reality, this was just a terrible movie. Mm-hmm. Um, was was disappointing, but the first time I'll always have that because it was fun and it was a fun theater experience for me. My actual favorite theater experience uh, just came recently. The second time I saw this film was when I went to see The Revenant for the second time. Um, it because was, you saw it with me. It really was because you know, we got to sit next to each other and be close and enjoy a film <sighs> that I loved and you despised. So that, that was good. But I feel like it was such a great film to see in the theater because of the tremendous sound design it had and also this the great visual um, beautiful the first landscapes. time you saw it, you saw it at the dinner theater, which doesn't have the greatest like quality as well. Like, the the screen was like flashing at times. And I'm like, is right, this part of the yeah. film? No, gotcha. it's not. Is this Gaspar Nose Enter the Void? <laughs> and there was also people at the dinner theater, which is usually the case, that could not handle a film, so they were making comments during it and on their phone. And boy, I just hate that shit. We are serving white cake. <laughs> so the second viewing though of the Revenant. Um, I just enjoyed the film, but actually seeing it in the theater and, and hearing the sound and seeing the visuals on the screen and then watching the story progress throughout and getting to enjoy my full two hours and 40 minutes was just awesome. And I'm so glad I got to see it again and seeing it in a theater and presented the way it really should have been. It was just great. Yep. So there we uh, go. Yeah. This category is like almost not even fair for me to participate in because there's just... When Tarantino makes a movie on 70mm film and releases it as a roadshow version, uh, nothing can come close for me as far as my fetishes and cinema go. Yeah. Uh, just besides the fact, like, you take away all the aesthetic things that is completely stroking my film dick. Uh, <laughs> just get rid of the, the program and the, the actual film, the celluloid and the intermission and the overture and all that, whatever. Like, I loved watching this movie with that crowd and even if i despised that same crowd at the you know at various points in the movie like i love that he made event cinema and yet he made a movie that like a shows you who your friends are and who your enemies are and <laughs> and b confronts all these people who i don't think were quite ready for exactly i mean we all we all know tarantino and we know but uh who just i just love it this is the story he wanted to tell when he knew he would have people and and he even the the showmanship of the the intermission and where he placed that uh, in conjunction to what had just happened prior. I mean, that's a that's a moment that we we get launched into uh, where he goes, okay, now have ten minutes and try not to talk about it or sit uncomfortably and not talk about. It. You know, like it's just he didn't just make an epic. He made a a movie that's so volatile and begs you to react to it, and then he gives you the space to do it, and uh, that's why. Uh, and of course, I fucking love. Cell so yeah. that's why the hateful eight was definitely my the first time I saw it at the roadshow edition, and that's why I went back and saw it again in the roadshow edition as easily my best or my favorite uh, theater experience. Yeah, that was that was right up there with me too because I, <clears throat> you guys mentioned especially you Nick, I I loved it too, and I love that we the three of us went to go see it, and I love that that the 
theater employee was like, do you guys want the program? I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah we want the do. program. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, Wait, what kind of a question is that? At least the second time I went, they just gave me one. I'm like, good, you're a good employee because it's like, you know, you have them in a box and, you know, like, I don't know why you... Yeah. I paid for this, so, so that's, like that's that. what's wrong, and that's why I love this movie, and I love Tarantino, who's still trying to resurrect the the just the idea of what it means to go to a movie theater and to sit and just let a storyteller take over your life for you know three hours or something and uh and that's where like yeah that employee had to ask that because I think he felt awkward because we don't do that anymore and whatnot so it's like I get it but it's like I, Tarantino's the only filmmaker who seems concerned that we're heading in that direction yeah. that's why I love it so I loved it too all right on to our eleventh category which was most overrated film okay. Um, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think that my most overrated film of this year was Star Wars, The Force Awakens. And I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that as an admonishment towards the film. I love the film. I I, I go back to the, go back to our review and like, listen to what I have to say about it. Because I think I was very fair with it. And I, I really do have good feelings about the film. I just think that it kind of fell on some parts with me. I think that it being the most overrated film is kind of the 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 side effect of, of hype. It's the side effect of acclaim in that in that way. Is that I can acclaim it at the same time as also understanding that a lot of people were not so hot on it and that it did kind of create this schism in the in the fan in the Star Wars fan base about whether or not it was it was good enough on its own if it was bring rel- George Lucas back. You know what? You know what? <laughs> let's make a note of that. I'm gonna let's put a pin Uh-oh. in in the overrated rated film thing, and I want to actually talk about this shit right now. Okay. Okay. What, that, do you, what do you have to say? Because that whole thing pisses me off to no end. All right. <laughs> let me let me let me just say this out loud while, okay. while, while I have have a chance to. Okay. For the people who are are petitioning for George Lucas to be taken back as like the the director for Episode Nine. Where's your petition for the acknowledgement of Maria Lucas, who was so influential in almost all of the most major scenes in the original trilogy? And yet she was – at the time when she was with, with George Lucas, she was considered his right-hand person, the person that – she decided how the final run against the Death Star was going to happen. She's the one who floated the idea of killing Obi-Wan Kenobi. She was responsible for all those things, and yet we know nothing about her. Yeah. She's the only single person who is part of the original Star Wars, A New Hope, to have won an Academy Award for editing. And yet you will not petition to acknowledge her. How about that? Uh, I think if it makes you feel any better, I know it doesn't. After that, that that you just <laughs> said, know if anything is going to make you feel better, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but but but, but, it, but if it makes you feel any better, I'm pretty sure Disney and the executives like heard about that and just had like good chuckle among themselves, and we're just like, <laughs> like we're going to do yeah. that. So it's, it's absolute I, bullshit. I wouldn't worry about George Lucas ever <laughs> brought it up as a joke. I love how I can somehow I have like the key to unlock some of your biggest uh, tirades. Like, yeah, my, <laughs> I just think I'm making a joke of it. I will somehow hit the bullseye. Yeah, it's, 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 it comes alive. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something that that I don't vent about on on social media just because like this is so fucking stupid. Well, you can vent about it here. Yeah, thanks, he just man. George Lucas is just he. I just don't know him personally don't really know no. too many of his other films believe it or not i want to see uh, thx 
like his uh, his original like sci-fi film that was really uh, stripped down because I just think it looks cool. Yeah, I, I just think in, he just has this aura of Mister Potter from uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. Like he is just this person who just is so much about what's going on with him and that why doesn't everybody else understand that I should be the most important person and and you are just there, but I I am. I am George Lucas. He's like the Steve Wozniak of the Star Wars universe. Wait. Don't do that. Don't even don't, don't even joke about that. Like that that does not work on so many levels. Don't even don't squish your face <laughs> up like that at me. Don't you do that. Okay, you go sit in the corner right now. Okay, whatever. Yeah, George I think we've probably heard the last of George Lucas. I think he's he's done. We'll so. see. Yeah. <laughs> Make it sound like somebody killed him. No, I, I, I think that's the last I, we've heard of George. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, he's I done. think people are pretty happy that he doesn't have any involvement with Star Wars anymore. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, that's that's, your most... that's my most overrated film, and I mean that with as much respect as possible to Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Yeah. Okay. okay, very good. So my most overrated film was a pretty easy selection, and it was It Follows. That's okay. Um, I remember seeing this at the theater and thinking it was absolutely terrible, and I still think it was absolutely terrible, even okay. though I like some of the aspects of this film, including the score, including some of the cinematography that was really standout-ish, and uh, even some of the scenes that I thought were, were okay. Too much of the entire package was just so horrible for me, and I just couldn't get on board at all. And it all culminated with that terrible pool scene that was just a total train wreck that I already was not on board with the film. But I thought, if this film can tie up everything and, and create something for me that I thought was, was kind of cool, it would make maybe make everything seem like it was better than it was and in fact it went in the opposite direction i was like well that was just just a waste of my time and that scene was just crap and then the and film ended and i i, I kind of like the the very ending of the film because mm-hmm. i think it is kind of a cool way to end the film and go straight into the title card with the the a score playing in the background but yeah as a whole it follows i thought was just a terrible pile of garbage and i just um i just don't think so that's I was okay, not homie. a fan. I will. Oh, sorry. No, I was, uh, a lot of people really loved it. I am, yeah. without a doubt, an outlier when it comes to this. But I just didn't care for it at all. I will say, after I praised it quite a bit when Toussaint brought it up as his number one of 2015, one thing that I do think it uh, shoots itself in the foot with is its emphasis on its rules. Uh, yeah. Like, and I'm saying that someone, as for someone who likes the film, I had to get over because it sets out that the the rules are so important and that they cannot be broken, and that it breaks them at every turn. And, <laughs> um, while I become to appreciate it in other ways, that's certainly something that's uh, it doesn't do itself any favors for. Is uh, so I, I can totally understand why this just did not work for anybody, or not for anybody, but for somebody. Yeah. Well, it it didn't work for me, and sure. I, uh, if you probably remember, I was not a fan and. I think I remember, like, we walked all the theater, and, like, no one had said anything. I just went, well, that was fucking awful. (laughs) I was not a fan, and I I appreciate that (laughs) a lot of people really like it, but, man, it just sucked. So my most overrated film was uh, It Follows. Cool. Right. Well, my most overrated film is, uh, so far we've had two, and this will be three out of three that has appeared on one of our top (laughs) 
six lists, but none of these three appeared on mine, so apparently I perfectly rate everything. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but no, my most overrated film is easily Mad Max Fury Road. Um, okay. uh, it's a film that I admire from a distance, the same way that the camera can capture some of the wonderfully exquisite choreography of some of the action scenes. On a recent uh, rewatch, I saw on Letterboxd that you gave it a one out of five, and I, I'm... One and a half. One and a let's, half. Let's be real here. A, a one on a half, one and a half, and I cannot... <laughs> on any earthly plane of existence uh, agree with that. but uh, yeah. And that's because, like, the first time I watched I gave it, like, three stars because I said I or I genuinely, like, I like it, but I don't really get it as far as, like, why it's being praise of the feminist masterpiece and mm-hmm. why the practical effects are overshadowing the pretty heavy use of CGI, too. I mean, it's like, you know, it's kind of like we, we only, as a... As a huge critical community, only talked about the good parts, and apparently it had no flaws, and and I just didn't I didn't watch that movie personally, and so the second time I watched it, unfortunately, was totally a case of like the first time I watched it, I tried to like it, and I I do think there are things that warrant attention, and we can learn from from it because I I, I liked I liked the idea of it, uh, but the second time I was way more bored when I knew. Uh, that all they had to do was stay in the Citadel because they came right back. <laughs> no, but I just couldn't get into it. And mm. uh, yeah, I, I totally would watch another one. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but like as much as I didn't enjoy this, like I, I would watch the next one if yeah. there's going to be another one. But I, I hope they can kind of vary it up a little bit and maybe not have such, I would say, weak character development because... Uh, the thematic resonance of, like, Furiosa looking for hope just did not work for me on any level. Do you think that the... Whether or not Furiosa's character makes an appearance, I don't think that she will, because that was never planned from the outset, but who knows what will happen now in pre-production with the response to this film. Do you feel like the 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 new film, a, a prospective new film, would suffer from kind of, like, this trumpeting of a of a newfound feminist like like depiction of it do you think that mad max has to measure up to that in order for it to like have no a, because a more favorable appraisal i would say if, if there's a new if there's another film mm-hmm. that like cause i don't think mad max itself like fury road i don't think that whoever wrote the script was it george miller it was yeah. okay he so i don't it, think I mean. that george miller wrote a script that had such uh i would say feminist overtones i oh we got some participants in the class here who yeah. wants to go first we have raised hands i, I want to go first okay. it's just a little side Did he? about about the um <clears throat> about the actual script itself the script is not a script the script is a fucking like concept book of pictures that he drew it's, it's fucking incredible and that's what i mean it feels like a like like, like what you're describing like a, a guillermo del toro film where it's like a, a film made out of ideas and mm-hmm. not characters and uh mm-hmm. you know it's like he had this image in his head and he perfectly captured that image uh but that's why i think it's kind of ridiculous that we're um as a society placing all this emphasis on his feminists whatnot so i don't because i don't think he did it the first There's time around a girl in it <laughs> because i don't think he did it the first time around i don't think it has to live up to anything because because I don't think he'll be, and maybe he will be, and maybe that's why it'll be better, because he'll be more conscious of it this time around, but uh, it definitely, did, did, as a film, did nothing for me, even if I can admire what people like about it. I think it would be somewhat interesting, actually, <clears throat> if the next Mad Max film has a lot of misogynistic behavior in it. And I, I'm, I'm saying that in all seriousness. It's like a social experiment. I would love to see that. Well, I'm, I'm just saying because 
showing the other side because it's Max involved in another probably community. It's a total in a totally different direction of what the Citadel is going in. And I think it would be an interesting parallel between what Fury Road was and what this new film is gonna be. I'm not talking like over the top like that bullshit website, Return of the King nonsense. <laughs> but what I'm saying is is having kind of an opposite side of the coin and see kind of Max going through a totally different community that's in a going in a different direction in terms of humanity. Yeah, that would that would be interesting. I think anything would be more interesting <laughs> than what we got. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. Shots fired. <laughs> Had to get one in there. Yeah, I know. But but like I said, I do admire it. I just can't connect with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh go to our final category, which I think is a, a, a kind of a fun name for it, which is the <laughs> Biggest what the fuck moment uh, of any film, and uh, that is our final category in Tucson. Why don't you start? Before we start, I just want to call it right now that there's a very distinct possibility we'll all have the same moment. Yeah. Okay, now Tucson, go. Yeah, okay. So I have a favorite uh, best what the fuck moment, but I also have two runner-ups. So when I talk about those, my first runner-up is uh, from It Follows. When Jay and her friends are about to go to the pool and they like they pull out of the driveway and you see from a low angle from the uh, the, the dashboard where the thing has where the it has been this entire time it's just this fucking middle aged naked man standing on a fucking rooftop and I was, and I went to go see this with my friend Adam and he's like they're dead they're dead it's, it's done it's like there's you're not gonna get away it's, it's 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 on the fucking roof there's a naked man on the roof and he's looking at you is his boner erect i don't know just just it wasn't yeah <laughs> oh my god it was so fucked up um just a penis no it's not just a penis it's a naked man on a roof okay it's like some fucking kafka-esque bullshit there okay um but my 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 other runner-up is from Mad Max Fury Road, and I don't think that this was something that was out there. Like, it, it wasn't meant to be like, totally out there, but for me, it was just kind of, like, sickening thinking about that. And it was the idea of mother's milk. Hmm. Basically, these fucking women, these wives of, of Immortan Joe are being, like, pumped like, like dairy like cattle. Like dairy cattle. And and storing milk in this giant like like tanker container, and like Max, while well, he has all this blood on his face, not his blood, of course, not his blood, has to wash it off in mother's milk. I was just like, what the fuck is going on, man? Yeah, that was something I distinctly remember. Yeah. Um. So my top like best what the fuck moment, which I feel like is going to be alongside my my film take cohorts is uh oscar isaac's dance yes in ex machina that's my number one or my but the only thing i wrote down so i'll just say that right now yeah it's uh i i i can't put into words the the horror and the rapture i felt watching him cut a rug because it, he was so fucking into it oh my god yeah yeah his his delivery after caleb says you know you tore her picture up and he says yeah i'm gonna tear the fucking dance floor up (laughs) it's so 
motherfucker. Golden. That. Oh my god. I have to say that that scene completely for me blows open the narrative of at least what I was watching, and especially of the character of Nathan, because I feel like all the way up until that point, I was thinking that Nathan in some way was disingenuous, and that yeah. he, you know, he was this mad scientist. But it's at that moment that I realized that. He he is just this very lonely genius who uh, is really getting into this one moment because of a alcohol. He's kind of an alcoholic, and b you know he's got a uh, he's got a, an audience that will actually indulge his shit. And um, it also made me feel weirdly sympathetic towards him, even if he's a bad person. I'm just saying, like it, it just started to really turn the corner of like holy shit, he has no idea what he's in for because he is going to be destroyed and mm-hmm. and. His dance is just so great. The choreography of that when he's doing his, like, it's just, oh, God. I really want to know if, like, he came up with, I mean, I don't think he probably did, but I feel like he probably at least added a few moves because it just feels so weirdly, I don't want to say realistic, but just, like, something that's, you know, like he would do at a wedding or something. <laughs> like, yeah, I've been practicing this for a week or something. Uh, so, yeah, that moment was just fantastic. Yeah, I had a uh, I had an honorable mention on, on my list, which was the uh, Samuel L. Jackson oral rape scene in uh, yeah, yeah. Eightful Eight, which was, was the 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 talky piece. And it, I have to say, the first time seeing it, I was just like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, that yep. man is forcing his penis into that other man's mouth. Yep. All right, don't get pictures, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that was definitely, I think, the first thing on what you probably alluded to, Nick, earlier. We were talking about The Hateful Eight, that at the intermission, good luck not mentioning that if you're talking to somebody about the film, because that was the... uh, That's the last note you you were on. So, how about that cinematography? Yeah. But the, uh, as you guys have already mentioned, the biggest what-the-fuck moment was the amazing Oscar Isaac dance scene in Ex Machina, which I, I think... Because you kind of could kind of see where uh, the Samuel L. Jackson scene was going. Yeah, like the minute he starts talking, I my first thought was, "Holy shit, did he rape him?" Like I didn't know the exact whatever, but like I was already thinking, "Did he make him suck his own dick?" And it's still another five minutes before we get confirmation yeah. of that. But and then it goes all the way, and yeah. you're just like, "Holy shit!" But it, it, but mm-hmm. in, and that still was for me. I was like, "Holy oh, yeah. fuck!" Like they like, went. They then just it was went like, "Oh, it. now we are there." And but, but what yeah. I what I will say for the ex machina scene is it totally fucking comes out of left field, yeah. like all the way. And but it doesn't feel like that for the sake of that either. No. Like it feels like a this like. In the most glorious way possible. It was. And it was just Oscar Isaac just fully committed to the scene and dancing his ass off. Like, it was unbelievably amazing. And it was... It's a shame that too ma- that not enough people have seen that film yet. I know a lot of people have, but not enough because that is like a cult, amazing, like classic scene of a film. Yeah. Like, when I think of, like, scenes like... Um, the uh, the scene from uh, is it Basic Instinct with uh, Sharon, Sharon Stone, Stone yep. opening her legs like Paul Verhoeven, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, name drop what? <laughs> like it's right up there with that kind of like scene of watching a film and going like, what the fuck is oh, that? Yeah. What? Like, did that just happen? But it, but this scene was both that and both a great scene at the same time. And it's, God, it it only works because of Oscar Isaac. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, it only works because of him. But then also to have a person like Tom Hall Gleason who. I feel like conveys passiveness better than he does like activeness. And so his like completely muted horror at what he's watching. It's like, this is the scariest thing he's seen all week and he's seen some weird shit and that this would be the thing that just kind of makes him go, what the fuck is happening here? Uh, It's just golden. 
Yeah, I also, other than the uh, what's your favorite kind of girl, no, what's your favorite salad dressing? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, what's than, your favorite salad dressing? Other than that line, when he just randomly looks at Caleb in a like, total, like, falling asleep, drunken stupor, saying, who are you going to call? And then he's like... <laughs> Caleb's talking about something and he just busts in Ghostbusters. That's who you're gonna call. Like, oh man, what the fuck, man? That's a joke. Yeah. Um, Nathan is just kind of alluding what you're talking about, Tucson, when you said he was your favorite male performance. Mm-hmm. Um, that character was just so great on so many levels, and I actually think, even though I've, I, I, I guess I like other Oscar Isaac performances more. Possibly, I think that's the best character he's played yet in his career. I was I was a big fan. I think it's second I only to, to Lewin, Lewin Davis yeah. for me. Uh, which I, I loved his character. Just got the Criterion edition of, and it's great. Oh Ooh. yeah, oh yeah, nice so, little plug there. I loved his character in The Most Violent Year. I it's thought it was great, that. but yep. and his performance there is more I was talking about. But his character here was was so good in that that film Ex Machina, which seemed to get mentioned quite a bit on, on yep. this. So that was good. Speaking of like layers to that film, before we wrap up, I want to say one thing. One interesting little letterbox tidbit I read from a critic. I think it was Matt Singer. So uh, apologies if I'm citing the wrong person, but I believe he was the one that um, said that the reason why this script is so good is that it's it's essentially twofold. You watch the first time as Caleb, but you watch the second time and all repeated times as Nathan. As mm-hmm. you know, as far as like your point of view, and I think that actually makes perfect sense because when you when you're when you know the whole story, then you're basically watching like like you said, you watch as Nathan, which means you're you're watching Caleb as this kind of rat in a mouse type maze. Uh, yeah. and I, I just think that's actually pretty spot on and that's that's how you do a thriller as far as like you can't have a twist that completely uh, upends everything that came before it but uh, if you have something that's so natural and just has two sides of a story and we just don't have all the pieces to see the other side then yeah and part of that's because of nathan's or oscar isaac's performance yeah right on so yeah that was our uh two-part episodes of the uh the best of 2015 and now we're going to move on to 2016 so, things to look forward to, uh, a few things. First, our, our upcoming episode, which is episode 49, is going to start our uh, three-episode series, which is going to get broken up a little bit in uh, in the month of February. But the first episode is the start of our February favorites, which is our favorite three films. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start with Nick, because Nick always goes first. That's right. And uh, we're going to watch his, or hit and talk about his favorite film, which is... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. First of all, I just want to make sure, roll call, Alex has seen it at least once. Tucson, have you seen it before? No, okay. never. All right. Yeah. I'll be curious to know what you uh, what you think as a first-time viewer. Yeah, and I've seen Absolutely. it three times. Oh. I'm going to watch it a fourth, so wow. looking forward to it. And uh, where I'm going to watch it is actually some something I was <laughs> also going to talk about, is myself and Nick are going to the Sundance Film Festival uh, here coming up been like a day by the time this is released we'll probably be in Sundance (laughs) I think and I I know this is something that Nick's very much uh, always wanted to do and something I'm very much looking forward to it's that wasn't like a a bucket list item for me but it's something that I'm I've always been interested in and ever since finding out that you really wanted to go and (laughs) deciding last year like almost a calendar year ago we're going to go 
kind of building up what it, you know the excitement is going to be of it, and uh, we're going to have a whole episode kind of reviewing our experience at the Sundance Film Festival. <laughs> what an episode that would be! This is literally something I've wanted to do for over a decade, and never thought I would ever be able to do. And mm-hmm. not even because of like finance or whatever, because I just never thought I'd be in a situation where it would all coalesce and actually happen. And uh, you know, knock on wood, at the time of this recording, that it does happen, and <laughs> yeah. we uh, don't get snowbound or whatever. Um, but I, I, I checked the weather schedule and it looks okay you're gonna be stuck at mini's haberdashery yeah <laughs> things are about to get cozy <laughs> you never really know what can happen with weather yeah. this time of year in fucking illinois but uh hopefully and we're seeing we'll... 14 films yeah uh, which is I, from what i'm starting to read is kind of a lot uh, compared to like <laughs> it's i kind I, of a lot well i i guess we i mean a we planned it out so none of these are overlapping or anything like that but i even went back to like some of the critics uh uh, pieces like Mike D'Angelo does Sundance coverage every year and whatnot. And when I counted his films, he was doing about two to three a, a day. We're doing three, four, three, four. So I, we're and yeah, I saw so many tweets of people who like couldn't get tickets. So I apologize if I took your tickets, but uh, <laughs> not I, really. No, I'm not <laughs> at all. So yeah, and then so this will be a you know a first time, and who knows, maybe only a one time experience. Uh, this will be. Something definitely we'll try to soak in all the way, and we'll bring back our experience on here and hopefully talk about some good movies. Yeah, I, I will let you know, let you all know how the Polish musical horror <laughs> film, The Lure, about killer mermaids that become strippers <laughs> is. Oh my god, please do. I want I to hear will. about that. Yeah. A, I'll show you a trailer after this podcast. Let okay, me tell awesome. You. Yeah. It's a, it looks like a something, and uh, there sure are does. other films, though, that are, I think, seriously going to be really good, so looking forward to that. And then uh, after that, episode 50 then will be our first uh, new film of 2016, and it is one that I think everybody on this podcast has been looking forward to. And that is the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. For a moment, I thought you were talking about Deadpool. Because I, oh, no. I know it's coming out in February, and I'm like, I don't know if everybody's looking forward no, to it. No, I'm but, looking forward to it. No, yeah, but also, there has been a secret leak that Deadpool might be having a secret screening at Sundance. Really? Yeah, as one of the TPAs. That, oh. is, that is kind of a rumor going on right now. Uh. Just random tidbit. Anyway, well, maybe yeah. if we have time and it's there and we aren't doing yeah, anything, that's in not that as going to happen. You have fourteen <laughs> films to watch. Well, yeah. Well, it's the thing is the TBA comes on the final day, and that's when we don't have any movies scheduled. Yeah. Like we're going to be there the entire uh, day because that's the day they reserve to either a show the award winners, like the ones that won the award, they'll reshow, or b their most popular movies, or c. Uh, show a secret film like they did with uh, Nymphomaniac Volume 1 when that was first released. Yeah, I mean, if we have nothing going on and tickets are available, maybe we'll end up seeing it. You're so enthused. I can't. It's just I want to see Deadpool. I do. Yeah, but I I just, I think it's going to be a lot like. I don't need to see it there if we have other, if there's there's other other things going on. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like with Deadpool, like I do about The Punisher, like I think it's going to be a fun film that, is not going to be a great film, but I'm going to enjoy watching it. So, But we'll also be talking about that hopefully later in February. But uh, those are the three episodes coming up with involving Magnolia, uh, our, myself and Nick's Sundance Review, and Hail Caesar. That'll be coming up to look forward to in February. Eddie. <laughs> oh, boy. So, from Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, and Toussaint Egan, thank you very much for listening to this 2015 Year in Review, and we will catch up with you next time. See you guys.